0: Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our course platform at onecommune.com. Where you'll find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hoff, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Michler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. Anxiety is a modern epidemic. Studies online suggest that anxiety afflicts 40 million Americans, but honestly, that feels like an underestimate. Anxiety is your body's response to stress, a feeling of fear or apprehension about what's to come. Now, there are many sources of anxiety, from the passing nervousness of a job interview or a trip to the doctor, to the more chronic stress that can be associated with economic insecurity. Our egoic mind, wants to assert complete control over our lives. It seeks to incessantly eliminate uncertainty. The mind will take past experiences and project them into the future as a means of allaying this uncertainty. However, this tendency can actually raise levels of anxiety because much of life is simply uncertain. Additionally, in modern life, There seems to be new forces at play that are contributing to unprecedented levels of stress. The interplay between consumerism, social media, and the endless sanctification of the individual may be one place to look. We live in a highly commodified social structure that incessantly tries to convince us that we are not enough in order to successfully market trinkets, services, and gadgets to address our perceived deficiencies. You can't turn your head without seeing images of what female beauty is supposed to look like or what male success is prescribed to be. Layer in social media that not only banks our personal algorithms as a means to market to us, but also becomes the forum to prove our enoughness, the place we project our false perfect life in order to fit in, gathering empty likes. This exhausting psychological and emotional relationship with reality eventually takes a physical toll, leading to inflammation and chronic disease. The causes of anxiety are many. And in order to slay this dragon, we need articulate teachers with powerful tools, ideas, and techniques. This is where today's guest, Peter Krohn, comes in big time. Peter is known as the mind architect because he redesigns the subconscious mind. You might call him an interior designer. He helps dissolve the mind's limiting beliefs to relieve stress and unleash human potential. Peter works with everyone from world-class athletes and high-power CEOs to parents and, as you'll hear, podcast hosts. Peter is a writer and speaker and has been featured in numerous documentaries, including Heal by Kelly noonan Goris, who was on the show a couple months back. In this episode, we talk about how suffering can be relieved through presence, the desire of the egoic mind to control its environment, Peter's unique take on uncertainty, and he even helps dissolve one of my greatest anxieties, plane travel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Commune.
1: So, well, in terms of who I am, I mean, I could get as esoteric as, as you want and say I'm a space of uh, possibility and unconditional love for people, which may sound very poetic, but I would assert at some level it's uh, actually very practical. Mm. Um, but I think in day-to-day vernacular, like I'm, I'm now commonly known as the mind architect, so I'm sort of redesigning people's inner thinking space, which, what does that mean? I, uh, I have sort of delineated what I would assert are these primal, constructs that we live in and they're fundamentally constraints. And as we function within those, we live a life predominantly based on survival instincts. And so what I introduce people to is the world of freedom, of true liberation on the other side of these limitations that are deep seated in the primal programming of our subconscious mind. So So when you talk about limitations, what do you specifically mean by that? I would say anything that is an inhibitor to possibility or potential. Hmm. So, you know, if we were to take a very everyday visceral example, it would be someone who's incarcerated. You know, you could argue, go down to San Quentin prison and say, you know, do you feel limited? I mean, I'm pretty certain they're going to say yes, right? So there is this literal, physical bars and bricks that is is preventing somebody from self expression. So for me, as that relates to people in everyday life who aren't serving you know, time in prison, they're nonetheless still caught up in the, the linguistic limitations of, of their own uh, perceived ideas of themselves.
0: Right. I've heard said that the man living in the mansion is only, is only on the spectrum just a bit more free. Mm-hmm. than a prisoner on some level if you're talking about yeah. it, the incarceration of the mind. Mm-hmm. And I think when you refer to limitation or limiting beliefs, yeah. you are also not speaking just literally, like within the confines of four walls in a cell in right. San Quentin. Per, per well, sec-
1: you've been told to go to your room because you're a bad boy. And...
0: When you talk about freedom, mm-hmm. is it essentially freedom from those limiting beliefs? And and if so, yeah. how
1: do you obtain that? You want me to give you all the answers?
0: <laughs> well, that's why you're I'm here, kidding. right? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yes. So yes is the answer to the first part of the question. It is freedom from those constraints. So they're not literal, but they are literal, meaning that they exist in the way that the world occurs to us, right? So uh, my, my work is less in strategizing and perfecting people's circumstances, which is a lot of experts do. They give you behavioral adaptations to whatever you're dealing with. So they wanna give you some kind of action to take for your anxiety or some kind of behavioral shift that you should make because of your depression. Um, For me, I'm helping people see the freedom that's on the other side of these deep-seated subconscious patterns that give rise to the experience of anxiety or depression. That's an entirely different proposition. So one of the catchphrases I use, I say, I don't dissolve people. Sorry, I don't solve people's problems, I dissolve. Hmm. So that becomes an internal proposition, right, versus looking to these exogenous surroundings and or strategies or even substances or whatever we're looking for externally that we feel will give us some sense of respite or liberation from our internal sense of suffering. Really it's you know under the umbrella of suffering right whatever it is that people are experiencing. So yes freedom is the 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 transcendence of that. Uh, The how to the second part of your question is really through the inquiry of the validity or the truth of whatever it is that somebody is fundamentally believing. So when we get down to, you gave reference to some of the most common ones, right? Like the feeling of inadequacy or I'm not enough. Every human being at some point is going to have that experience. And then we either by virtue of maturity we grow beyond it we do some work we have therapy we go to some sort of transformational courses and maybe we go oh okay right that's just something that i adopted because my dad my mom my high school teacher said x y o said and i suddenly took on this belief that i was somehow inadequate and it's not actually the case and then for some people, those constraints completely dominate their their life, from their emotional state, to the behaviors they take, to the job that they have, the kind of partners that they attract. So the dissolution process, as I spoke to earlier, is really to investigate the validity of that self-perception or of that perspective that you have. And... Why for me that's so profound is because instead of trying to solve a problem, which would only be reinforcing the belief that you have one, which is of course why people are in therapy for decades, you know, or they still have to stay on whatever pharmaceutical product they're taking because it's not actually resolving anything at the root cause. Once we get to the fundamental inquiry of the truth or the validity of that way that you perceive yourself and see that it's always not a truth, it may feel very real, you may have evidence all over the world that that's who you are, then it just disintegrates. And that's why it's so powerful and why I've been blessed to experience these, what seem like miracle results, instantaneously oftentimes, and, and sports is a beautiful vehicle for, you know, to be able to see these, these very tangible results in a very short space of time once somebody steps into a different dimension. So that's, that's the how. So yes, it is freedom on the other side of that. And the how is to help people see that whatever they believe themselves to be is fundamentally, fundamentally at the deepest level, not an actual truth. It is just the way that you have developed your relationship to yourself in life. And this is why I love working with actors, right? Because they do that for a living. They will take on a character. And and the degree to which they do it well is the degree which we go on a ride, sit and watching a film and then maybe they get accolades and movie, um, you know, awards. But they know deep down that's not, you know, Tom Hanks, when he played the guy dying of HIV in Philadelphia, for which he won an Academy Award every day, he knows that he's not gay and he doesn't have HIV and he's not dying, you know. Mm. So it's really revealing what is beneath the role we're playing.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. I think we tend to, in a structuralist sort of way, in a way that we often turn history into nature. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we take the historical or the cultural circumstances and experiences of our life. Yeah. And then we turn them into nature things that are inherently and universally true. Yes. And instead of essentially saying, like, listen, I'm had I am a sum of these different experiences. Mm-hmm. Maybe I went through some sort of trauma, some sort of pain that mm-hmm. has elicited a certain kinds of repetitive behavior in my life. And it's very easy to say, No, that's just who I am. Yeah. Like absolutely. you take history and you make it into nature. yeah and in a way, it's like you have to pull that back and it sounds like that's what you help people do, yeah. is to actually understand no, that's not your nature. yeah that is the the aggregation or the summation of the circumstances in which you have experienced life. yeah and now you have to unwind. Mm-hmm. Some of those behaviors, many yeah. of, of which are subconscious, yeah. identify them and potentially wind up new behaviors yeah. that
1: better serve you. As I say, the ultimate game of cosmic hide and seek. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's the Houdini process. That You know, at some level, we created these beliefs of inadequacy, and insecurity or scarcity. And then the game is, okay, you put yourself in a prison. Who can break free first? Right. right. and And it is... It is that, it's conditioning. It's We have all the evidence in the world, and when I write in quotes, and this is you know sort of the main format of my book, and one that comes to mind in the way that you're describing this history that is giving evidence to the validity of who we are today is that past hurt informs future fear. So whenever we have any you know disappointments, trauma is a strong word, and I'm not denying that people go through some awful experiences, but whenever we basically, and it's sort of a childlike way of describing it, whenever we got hurt, or upset the brain because it's designed to help us survive. So, its predominant function is to predict and protect. So, I could be talking to a major league, you know, um, baseball player. And what he's struggling with, his hurt, is that he's facing the same pitcher that three, four weeks ago he didn't get a hit off. Right. Now, is that life threatening? No. But in the way that his physiology responds, if we were, without any sense of what was going on, and it was purely the chemistry and the biology that we were studying, we're like, wow, this guy is about to die, right? But it's only because he's perceiving this this potential threat in the future, which is a reflection of a history that created some sort of suffering that now his brain, doing its job, is trying to avoid. But there's no freedom in that. Mm. That's got nothing to do with being in the zone, or a lot of people will talk about being in the now or being present. Sure. And so they are the the ancillary byproducts and benefits of what I bring people is that once you reconcile your history, you simultaneously collapse your future. So you get rid of suffering whilst equally getting rid of fear. And guess what I'm left with is me here now, which goes right. back to how I answered the very first question, which is I'm a space of unconditional love and possibility.
0: Mm. Yeah. Byron Katie talks a lot about that, essentially. Yeah, that absolutely. She's su- great. Suffering is in, not to deny that people have gone <clears throat> through trauma. but that essentially suffering is often uh, caused by perpetual egocentric thought, self-centric thought, Mm -hmm. and that is about taking pain or suffering that has existed in the past and essentially projecting that forward when in the moment you're probably just fine right here, right now. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, that's where, you know, again, sort of tongue-in-cheek, I use a lot of humor in my work because I think everybody takes all of this way too seriously, but it's like you know, the number one, I would say that sort of one of the number one objectives of the ego is simply to be right. Hmm. Because that's, it's very disconcerting. And it's very disorienting for somebody when they think that they know who they are suddenly gets challenged and worse still starts to disintegrate. Because then it's like, who am I, which is such a beautiful place to start and a very traditional spiritual question to ask, right, Ramana Maharshi, he would always have people who showed up in his ashram ask that question, who am I? And it's really a process of constantly r- revealing that which is beneath something that you realize is not me. Like to say, I am depressed, which, at the you know, let's face it, in this day and age, millions of people are declaring, whether they're physically saying it or they're just thinking it. It's a complete lie. Now, I'm not denying that they don't feel great or they might have symptoms that, like, you know, Western medicine is saying are akin to depression, but to say I am depressed is such a disservice to that person's ability to find freedom because they're nailing their foot to the floor around a symptom. And now they're going to do everything they can to manage that. But that's an exhausting and futile plight, right, versus mm-hmm. saying I feel depressed. Right. Right. There's a, do you see there's a little bit more space there? And and I take it even deeper if, uh, you know, I had a, a bunch of clients who would declare that like I, I'm chronically depressed or it's chemical imbalances, or whatever people want to use as a justification. I said, if you really were depressed, right, that's who you were, you wouldn't make the statement, I am depressed because you wouldn't, it's, it's like saying I am. Right. Because you wouldn't experience the depression. You only experience the experience of depression relative to your true nature, which is freedom. That's why depression doesn't feel good.
0: if you have experienced like almost anyone feelings of happiness and depression yeah. love sadness a gamut of emotions which we have all of yeah those emotions come and go yeah. like visitors yeah in a house mm-hmm. but you are the house right yeah. You're you know the space. Yeah. you are the and you know i'm starting just on very personally yeah. to try to find the capability or the awareness to see myself as angry or yeah. or as loving, yeah. and, and to almost witness that in myself—that yeah. there can be this sort of expression—that I'm experiencing life through a series of phenomena, yeah. limited basically by my five senses' ability to experience it. Yeah, and I, but to live to cultivate that awareness consistently that i am not this microphone right. <laughs> or on a deeper level i am not depressed whatever the emotion is yeah. whatever the emotion is you know one thing that i i think is really fascinating about what you talk about and it um in some ways it like belies one of my rules or tools that i've used over time mm-hmm. so like anybody else uh, I have certain anxieties, okay, okay? and uh, or maybe not like everybody else, but yeah, I'm just saying it. I do. Yeah. And uh, there's a friend of mine named Chip Conley, okay, brilliant guy who was <clears throat> on the board of Burning Man and Esalen and has done all sorts of really interesting things. Who became right. sort of the elder at Airbnb. Neat guy. He wrote a book called Emotional Equations. Okay, and this, in some ways, was for Blockheaded men like me to understand <laughs> their emotions because yeah. he puts them in a mathematical equation. Okay. okay yeah. So he put he created a mathematical ma- mathematical equation for anxiety. Okay. And what he says is anxiety yeah. equals yeah. powerlessness times uncertainty. Okay. Anxiety equals powerlessness times uncertainty. Okay. And so. There's certain things that I would have anxiety over mm-hmm. around public speaking, maybe yeah. or riding on an airplane, yeah, and in order to relieve that anxiety, yeah, I would instead of embracing the uncertainty, which yeah. I want to get to, okay, I would actually just do as many things as I could to lower. The uncertainty yeah. to a ridiculous degree. Got like, it. let's just say it's an airplane. I want to know what the meal is. What's the model of the airplane? What Am I on an aisle seat? Yeah. When is the boarding? What does the airport look like? Well, you know, just yeah. basically eliminating as many things that I was uncertain about yeah. to try to take the uncertainty from a 10 to a 5, and yeah. then by extension, the anxiety would go down. Yeah. But when I listen to you, actually, that's a <laughs> you have a very different approach yeah to uncertainty and so i wonder if you could tell a little bit about sort of your epiphany
1: around uncertainty and then your thoughts about living with it okay well i love what you just shared and it's very powerful and i think the reason being because it speaks to how many you know how the majority of people would manage circumstance for you it's anxiety you use you know flying as as one example right so um i'll come back to that by virtue of the second part of your question with uncertainty. So the experience to, to you know, on your request to share that was, I, I was dating someone and it was really the first kind of relationship that had real significance to me, right? My subjective um, relationship to this woman was like, I'm in love with her, right? And so obviously when we're in love with someone it carries so much more importance, uh, uh, apparently and you know i cut to the chase she basically left after almost a couple of years of being together and what that was was the catalyst to reveal and it was a deep trigger for my my quote unquote subconscious deep fears of loss right which were based on what i was saying earlier past hurt informs future fear my mum died when i was seven my dad died when i was 17 and i was an only child so i was orphaned before i was quote unquote an adult right so there's so many things that I could speak to about that experience that I didn't know at the time, the predominant one being that I felt, in hindsight, it was a visceral experience of isolation. Mm. Right. So if we were to unpack what is the ego, what is the identity, what is the persona, it is sort of this individualized experience of ourselves relative to the collective. Right. And so if we look at basic psychology, we want to belong, and that could, to me, really speak to what real love is and community and tribe. But if I'm looking through a mechanism that by its design is individualistic, you know, the ego, then my experience perpetually is separation, which is why then we create all of these adaptations, behavioral um, compensations to try and be loved. You know, there's a myriad of ways that we do that, right? Like, you know, for the girl that has to look beautiful and sexy all the time on Instagram to the guy that has to be wealthy and drive the right car. These are terrible stereotypes, but you get the point. We're desperately trying to fit back into the gang which is a completely futile, not to mention exhausting proposition because you never weren't part of the gang. In fact, there's no gang. Anyway, that's even deeper. But, so what happened was for myself in terms of recognizing this place of uncertainty to be so potently powerful, she left, it brought all of these concerns to the surface and for six to eight weeks or whatever it was that I went through my visceral human experience of suffering, not sleeping, losing weight, calling friends, desperate men doing desperate things, figuring out how I was gonna get her back very similar to you and your anxiety and mitigating all of these probabilities. Um, I had these incessant questions going around, you know, will I see her again? Has she met someone else? Like, will I ever find love like that again? Like all of these questions that are super relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sat there, I was in a rent control apartment, uh, 200 square foot to my name. And um, I got the answer to all of the questions simultaneously. And it was three words. I don't know. And... You know, that may seem like a very unfulfilling response to the audience, but it was the most powerful moment in my life because my brain, which, as I said earlier, is designed to predict and protect, was trying to figure out, right, that is a behavioral adaptation to fear. Similar to you, you're going on a flight, you have this anxiety, which we can speak to in a minute, but then you're trying to mitigate all of the quote-unquote probabilities that could exacerbate your concerns, right? So this figuring out process where the mind is really just constantly trying to work out what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen, am i gonna be okay, is, is as far as I'm concerned why most people don't sleep and they have Hashimoto's and their adrenals, adre- their adrenals are shot and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So why it was so profound for me is that I had that same process because it's human, but I got to the other side of my concerns with those three words. Because not only was it the truth, which itself was liberating, But then at that time, to address your question, I realized that the very structure, the very fabric, the very nature of life itself is uncertainty. And then, because we're human and we're designed to survive, we have a mechanism, the brain and the way it's conditioned, which is to try and figure out what is going to happen in the realm of uncertainty? Now, if you just get this—if this is all that anyone gets from this whole conversation—it will completely and utterly transform their life. Which is the nature of life is uncertainty, and then by virtue of being human, you have a brain that's always trying to figure out what's going to happen. Right. Right. But really, that whole that whole mechanistic process mm. is all based in survival, deeper fears driving the whole show. Until you mitigate and reconcile all that fear, that's the game people are playing: trying to perfect circumstance, trying to control everything. I stopped playing the game. Mm. And the crazy part is my circumstances have never been better because that's relinquishment. That's, that's the realm of total trust or faith or surrender. And so that's, that's literally, I don't want to sound too grandiose about this, but it is literally a different dimension to function in.
0: Yes. And <laughs> I think this notion of surrender yeah. to the unknown <clears throat> That perhaps is the key to freedom. Mm-hmm. You
1: know. Yeah, you could but, probably drop the perhaps. Yeah. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I'm still figuring. I'm still groping well, my way there. I'm still on yeah. the path to it.
0: Yeah. So, and there's also a lot of humility in it. Massive amount. I mean, yeah. sort of recognizing your own relative insignificance is a part of it.
1: And that's the last thing that ego wants. see you you know this is the greatest fight right like you know you see memes on instagram wherever and it's like look in the mirror that's your only enemy and you know that to me is the game why i said earlier albeit tongue-in-cheek you know it's cosmic hide and seek or it's the houdini process of i arrive with a set of fears and constraints which nonetheless give me some sense of value in the world but really my liberation and what i crave is on the other side of the idea of myself who wants to get rid of themselves Mm. And then we develop this persona, which we could argue is sort of the birth of the idea of ourselves or our persona. What I'm introducing people to, and another way be maybe to contextualize my work, is this spiritual birth, which is who am I on the other side of the idea of who I thought I was previous to that awakening.
0: Mm.
1: That's the greatest death that you could ever have. And that's what I said I went through 20 plus years ago when I had this epiphany of I don't know and life is completely you know, uncertain and I'm clueless and I finally found freedom with that. that. That is a death. So that's until such time that you get on the other side of that, then it's always going to be the fear of the death, which is the reconciliation or the loss of myself. Mm. That's the real fear. Now, I'm not denying that, you know, you have a wife, you have kids. There's a sense of missing or love for somebody. But the death that people are concerned about, as I said, is more the misidentification with form and their humanity versus becoming more associated with the essence of who they are. So you love your family. Then rather than get attached to the form of them, you can bathe in the essence of the love you have for them and make sure, make sure that's where you live from. Such that, you know, as Thoreau said, he didn't fear death. He feared getting to death and realizing he was never alive. So that to me is, it's if we, it weren't for death as well, this is an entirely different conversation, but nonetheless a potent one, which is if it weren't for death, we wouldn't get to value life. Right. So I think death is a blessing because otherwise if I knew that I was going to be here for the next like million years, I'm like, you know what, fuck it. I'm not going to take care of what I'll, I'll talk to them in like, you know, 10,000 years. I mean, no, it gives a, a a depth of beauty, appreciation, reverence for life that- we so often take for granted. And I think it's a shame because, you know, life is spoiled on the youth for that reason because they think they've got decades ahead of them. And um, as we get older, there's this sort of appreciation, I think, for the fact that, wow, I may, may only have five, 10, 15 years left. And either way, wherever you're at, I hope that if someone gets you know anything again from this podcast, it's like, don't take shit for granted, you know? Like yeah. tell people you, that you love them. Go on the vacation. Don't have anxiety about the flight. Take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So is that your message? Because you work with some heavy-duty, important, some famous people. Um, And what is the – is the aperture pretty open, let's say, in a major league baseball team for that message? Again, it varies, you know, in Ayurveda,
1: we have an expression when people ask questions about, well, should I have this or should I eat, you know, like, can I have spicy food or should I drink tea, you know, whatever it is, it's always the answer is it depends, right, (laughs) which is so again, ungratifying to the audience. But so likewise, it depends on the person I'm talking to baseball, when I've worked with so many of these major leaguers, it's a very traditional sport. So their conditioning, just like your envy of your daughters, your conditioning of like, you know, relatively four plus decades, compared to their, their first decade, um, you've just got more reasons as to why you can't do something. So likewise, Mm -hmm. baseball is steeped in this tradition. So sometimes, you know, the veterans that I was working with might have a little bit more of a, a barrier to entry to these esoteric, you know, subjects that I might bring. But the young guys now who are like, you know, they're exposed to all sorts of shit all over the place, like they're a little bit more open. So, and I think in sports, professional sports, it is now the anomaly for an organization to not have someone like me involved, right? They recognize mm-hmm. the importance of the mental part of any performance. So um, so there's not much resistance. I'm also, I'm pretty, uh, I'm a pretty easy guy to talk to. You know, I know where to meet someone. If they want to talk mm-hmm. about cars and girls, that'll be the access to me delivering the medicine. Cool. That'll you know? be the next podcast we do. <laughs> um, so, but, so what would you say though? Like, okay,
0: I'm on um, the Angels and you know I've, I'm, I've never
1: seen you play that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's,
0: it's, it's, it's rarely it's, i get yeah i'm the pinch hitter once a year uh to get the water um and uh And I'm like, this dude struck me out four times in a row. Okay. And and he's got a wicked slider. Yeah. He's a lefty, and I'm a lefty, so I pick up the ball a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And I know I am just have trouble against him, and I'm walking up, and and there's a good chance he's just going to strike me out again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, which is, again, like, as you spoke earlier, taking past results and projecting them into the future. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what would you – essentially what would you tell someone like
1: that well i'd reflect what you said which is you know the things that you said the way you phrase them like is is inaccurate right so he has a wicked slider that's not a truth that's your perception Mm, right for somebody else who's a righty and has gone three for four last time he played him he's like no he's got a dog shit slider so which one's true so what is this actually revealing is not what that guy's got who you are so if you really break it down what you're only ever experiencing is you your subjective reality yeah it's just you and like it's a it's a powerful yet sometimes bizarre perspective which is there are as many worlds out there as there are people and you have exactly the one that you need to reveal where you have yet to break free So when you just presented this hypothetical, I'm an A's player, and this guy's got a wicked slider, all that I hear is this guy is just confirming his own doom. And that's not a game I would ever play with anyone. So I would introduce you to, do you know what's going to happen in five minutes? And you'll be like, maybe thrown a curveball by me, a wicked (laughs) curveball. Wicked one, yeah. (laughs) But you'd say no. And I'm like, okay, great. So then how the hell do you know what's going to happen in five hours when you step into the box? Now, I'm not denying that you're hurt and you're embarrassed and you're scared. That's fine. But that's got nothing to do with what's actually going to happen. So now we can make space for the emotions that you're having or the feelings you're having. You're a bit scared. That's okay. Okay. But that now to use that fear as evidence by collapsing it with your history as to what's going to happen, that's all ego. And there's no, no foundation of truth in that. So I would hold a space, similar to you with your anxiety, just to finish the point, rather than you trying to calculate all of these permutations to find some sense of relief. But what if we could take Jeff's anxiety and rather than try and mitigate it or control it by trying to figure everything out, which I would assert actually creates more anxiety, Right? The anxiety is perpetuating the behavioral adaptation to try and figure out, to mitigate the anxiety. But that behavior is anxious. Hmm. Versus what if we took your quote-unquote little boy who's anxious and we made space for him? If we allowed him to be there. No, I get it. Like, yeah, flying is kind of crazy. You're in this tube going, like, there's all sorts of things that could happen. It's okay. It's okay. And so now you start to make space for it. You allow it to be there versus trying to resolve it or solve it. Mm. And that's much more a feminine approach, which I would assert is where I start with everybody. You know, we have both of these qualities available to us. So the quintessential mother energy allows the feeling to be there. So it's a different way, even with my athletes, right? I'm bringing this maternal energy of acceptance. It's okay that you're worried that you may not do well against this picture. I got it. Now, so then they feel held, they feel safe, they feel seen. Is it a truth? Do you know what's gonna happen tonight? No, I don't. Okay, what if I told you you actually went three for four and you got a homer? Their face starts to light up. Wow, that'd be awesome. I'm like, well, that's as real as the future you just presented to me that you're worried about. Why? Because we're still sitting in the clubhouse.
0: To follow up that point Mm -hmm. and that particular metaphor, Mm -hmm. is happiness going three for four and hitting the homer? Or is happiness essentially approaching that particular at-bat or Mm -hmm. series of at-bats that night with that pitcher without any anxiety, without any care, without any um, attachment to result? Is essentially happiness the absence of the pursuit of it? Or yeah. is happiness baked in to a successful result? Were you quoting one of my quotes there? Well, right? I, I, I butchered <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. a little bit.
1: So yes, so that teed me up nicely to use my quote, which is true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness, right? Mm-hmm. But let's, that's, that's a lot deeper. So let's just stay with traditional <laughs> happiness for now. Fair enough. So I would say happiness is a subjective experience that is really based on the ego's perception of getting what it wants. So it's transitory. So going three for four for that guy, if he hasn't done deeper work, then he would feel happy with that night. But that's an emotional roller coaster because then let's say he faces another pitcher who he has done well before, you know, and so now he's cocky and confident. Like, no, he would be relative to the first guy. He's got a wicked slider because he hasn't had a hit. He goes three for four, he's happy. The next day, they face a different team, and that guy's got a dog shit slider in his perspective, yet he goes 0 for four. I hope, do you have a lot of baseball people in your <laughs> I don't, in fact. <laughs> I just but we just he, went there. It's yeah. like yoga. But anyway, hopefully people will follow. Um, so let's just say his expectation was well, I faced this guy last time, I got two homers, and I, I crushed it. But then he doesn't do well. Now he's unhappy, right? That's this exhausting emotional roller coaster. So happiness to me is really associated with the identity or the ego. And, and that's not a game that I like to play because it's exhausting. That's why I came up with a quote. Now to pull that back in, true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness. That then is freedom. So to your point about not give a shit or a lot of my athletes or anyone do say, gosh, I wish I didn't care so much. That, that's, the, that's their way of saying, gosh, I'm so invested that it hurts when things don't go my way. But again, there's no freedom there. So I want to take people to the other side of the concern, which is more to do with the mind and the care is more in our passion and our dedication. Like if you, I'll often say to people, say, I wish I didn't care so much. I say, no, you don't care enough because you're actually worrying more than you're caring. Mm -hmm. And that's an entirely different way of relating to life. I want to get you out of worry. I want you to be so dedicated to your craft. And this is where I bring in a lot of tough love with the athletes I've been with for a while or, or any performers. And, and get them to, quote, unquote, you know, poetically pull their head out of their asses and stop worrying about outcomes that haven't happened yet. Because that's how most people live their lives, right? They're trying to avoid, another one of my quotes, I say, trying to, most people are trying to avoid a bad future that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And that's an exhausting way to live life.
0: That's awful. Well, and let me, I
1: wonder if there's sort
0: of a parallel or correlation to, I suppose, what, how Siddhartha approached mm-hmm. um suffering yeah and we may our modern translation for suffering might be anxiety in some ways yeah depression upset any kind of emotional pain that but it but that essentially what the buddha was saying that the source of suffering is this perpetual constant desire yes and that we are then um doing everything across the spectrum to essentially assuage and deal with that desire from just like I'm uncomfortable in my chair, so I'm twitching a little bit, to Mm -hmm. buying the McMansion, to going three for four with two home runs. Yes. And that the only escape from suffering, the only way to allay suffering, is to essentially develop awareness or consciousness and non-attachment to result. Yeah. And how does that core message of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, I assume,
1: correlate with how you are thinking about happiness? Um, So, it's a beautiful comparison. And I would say, you know, they they recognize in, in the conversation of Buddhism that, yes, suffering is a byproduct of desire. So, I would take it a level deeper, because that's just my want, which is that, well, desire is a byproduct of not wanting, Hmm. right? So now, if you look at your own example, your fear of anxiety, of whatever it is, flying, what you're actually being driven by is what you don't want, in this case, to get hurt, to crash, to die, right? So then- Actually, I'll tell you what it really is. Okay, great. It's actually that I would,
0: it's the fear of judgment, which is the- kind of crazy part of it yeah it's that i would feel uncomfortable i would have some sort of anxiety outbreak maybe i'd throw up maybe i'd be sick yeah. and that other people would judge me for that it's actually not crashing or fine, <laughs> which is completely screwed up
1: right but i'll let you keep going that's amazing you're yeah. actually at that point if you're throwing up and you're like sweating because you're so anxious you hope to de- crash so there's no one there's no at evidence. that point i'm like please <laughs> there's just no take witness me out. <laughs> there's no witnesses to see that i was like a a quivering little child <laughs> yeah. right Okay, got it. Well, then I was way more accurate than I even realized yes. in the way that I described that what you're here to work on is to make space for the part of you that feels completely powerless and like a scared little boy. Yeah. And then we could, if we were to reverse engineer this to your own childhood, we would see the experience of the absence of that. No slide on your parents. But I would say that your opportunity here is as a man, as a father, so you've got great teachers, is to develop that sense of love and unconditional acceptance for the part of you that is scared. And that would be a different experience for you. So, okay, so what if you threw up, right? What that shows is that there's a part of you that you don't accept about yourself because you're concerned about what other people would think about you, which is really a reflection that you think there's something about you worth worrying about. And that is a very powerful thing for you to get out of this conversation, if you sit with that, and I'm happy to chat further offline. But that is your humanity. That is the part that I'm inviting you to accept is like, wow, there's a part of me that is so scared about what other people think about me. And then it's going to get exacerbated, right? Probably because of your role, what you've built here as a community. Wow, you're a spiritual dude. You created Wanderlust. Like you should be of all people sitting there in lotus position and just omming through the flight. So that exacerbates it beneath all of that. All there is is for you to recognize, wow, my humanity, which is like everyone, based in fear, limitation, inadequacy, and security, is concerned about what other people might think about me, and particularly in environments where I might have some kind of visceral reaction. Can you, as a man, find space, love, unconditional acceptance for the part of you that may, from time to time, not be impe- impeccably perfect in your society? Mm. Now, if you find space for that, first of all, whatever you're concerned about won't happen because you've allowed it. You've already made space for it. Secondly, you'll have a completely different sense of love and compassion for yourself, which then will get translated into everybody around you. You might actually hold your 10-year-old before you tell her to go to school and be herself, her authentic self, Mm. because you would find so much more compassion for somebody who's suffering because you've learned to hold that space for yourself. Mm. And that's a very different experience of life. Mm. That's beautiful.
0: The work that you're doing, yep. and I'm experiencing it right now, Great. is so, <clears throat> I think, very applicable and very powerful on the individual level. Like, I can see yeah. in a relatively short time yeah. how you can really unlock a lot of things for individuals. I wonder, because this is what I'm concerned about, Yeah, kind of given sort of the broader landscape of the human condition yeah is your work and your teachings applicable on a i guess societal global level and i Mm -hmm. ask because for the obvious reasons while like i'm feeling uh while there's personal anxiety and what i might call personal inflammation Mm -hmm. what i also witness in society is a tremendous amount of i guess societal inflammation and you could see that in global warming or you could see it in income inequality and social polarization and the fact that yeah we can barely get along and there's yeah donald trump won't shake nancy pelosi's hand and she tears up the script i'm like jesus christ i mean come on like you know how do we heal as
1: a global society yeah we're doing it now
0: Hmm.
1: we're doing it now and I don't know who's listening to this. I do know that I'm very humbled, and you spoke to this earlier about stepping into freedom, and my experience for that reason has been an immense amount of humility. But we don't know right now how many of your listeners, how many thousands that you get to, um, are experiencing freedom and relief by virtue of this conversation, right? So not only are you hopefully experiencing a sense of newfound possibility or relief for yourself and go, wow, maybe if I just stood with and held the space of anxiety versus mentally try and calculate the ways to offset it, I would have a different experience of relief. So we're doing it now because not only in terms of the logistics of people listening to what I'm saying, and I have, as I said, been humbled by the thousands of DMs and messages and emails, I mean, I had somebody just recently write in who said, I listened to your one podcast with a guy who helped get rid of dermatitis around his eyes, like within 24 hours, at least 70, 80% had gone and he'd been trying to get rid of it for months. She said, I listened to some of your words and I felt such relief. I've had psoriasis for as long as I care to remember and it's gone. Now, to a lot of people, that seems like either unbelievable, or it's a miracle To me, it's just physics, right? So your point about inflammation. If somebody's in a state of lack of ease or dis-ease in their system because of their psychological, emotional relationship to life, then their body has to reflect that over time. So to answer your question, we're doing it now, one, because you are different. Now, you may only be, to use your spec on the top of a pinhead, you know, that size. But nonetheless, if you look at the butterfly effect... If all that happened is that today Jeff has a little less anxiety, then the world has a lot less anxiety, or has a little less anxiety. Mm. So that's how this is helping at one level. And so there's something that at one level seems minuscule, but at the same time is palpable. And I rely on the palpability of it and the fact that it is making a difference. And whether there's 10 people or there's 10,000 listeners who today feel a little more relief They speak to their partner, their parent, their spouse in a little more loving way. They hold their kid for a second longer. They listen to their child for a bit longer because they're scared and they heard something about what I said to you. That's impactful. Mm. So that is scale.
0: Yeah, it is. And I think it's, I was very, like most people, strangely surprised at how moved I was by Kobe Bryant's Death. I mean, I was yeah. a basketball fan, and yeah, um, and certainly was a big part of a lot of people's lives. But it, in a way, like that incident transcended the life of one human being, mm-hmm. and in a way, got there was sort of this kind of collective grief. Yeah, that what i've experienced at least there has been this collective grief that has a lot of people sort of reassessing their priorities yeah. in life yeah much to what you just described so very very beautifully Thank you. of spend that extra moment hugging your child yeah. or being present with a friend essentially yeah engage in the things that are truly worthwhile in yeah. this life yeah yeah um and yeah. i think that uh your are teaching and your voice which is a beautiful voice
1: by the way you and you have much. an uncanny memory <laughs> just for things uh, I that listen. i've noticed quickly yeah. yeah um that's presence yeah people often comment on that and i'm like well when you're present you pay attention so yeah
0: yeah your work is um is really really helpful for people and i um i truly truly deeply profoundly appreciate you in this conversation well it means a lot to me
1: thank you and i can see and i hope you know that what i shared is going to change however you know subtly or however majorly you know the rest of your life and maybe does bring a little extra presence and connection and intimacy with your own family and the people that mean a lot to you and um i hope that you know if you do throw up on an airplane that you bring so much love and compassion to yourself that all you're surrounded by is people who want to hold you in a way that maybe you weren't available to before. um, Because that gives them an opportunity to see their capacity to make a difference. And it's something we forget sometimes is that we're so busy trying to look good or make a difference for others because it gives us a sense of self-worth that we deny other people that capacity to do the same for us. And I think in you being concerned about what other people might think about you, you deny them the capacity to just love you. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show with Peter Crone. To learn more about Peter's work and upcoming events, go on over to www.petercrone.com. He's also got a new online course called Free Your Mind that is life-changing. That's it from the Commune for this week. Please subscribe and leave us a review. And more importantly, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I always love hearing from you directly. My name's Jeff Krasno and in love, include me.